the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. In this episode, Tim leads a study into the book of Esther. The main reading is Esther chapter 2. Okay, we can have a look at Esther, and what we're going to see here is God's providence, uh, the unseen hand of history. You know, the book of Esther is one of the most remarkable books in the Bible. Why? A lot of the uh, research and everything I've done, they've all said the same, because it doesn't speak of God even once. You won't find his name anywhere, not even a hint. But J. Sidlow Baxter points out the name Jehovah is hidden four times as an acrostic. So basically, if you read it, at the beginning of every sentence, if you go down, it will read Lord, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And it's in there. You know there's a lot of stuff hidden in the Bible. You know that. Prayer is not mentioned either. You know, the story of Esther isn't even quoted in the New Testament. Not even a casual reference to it. It's also unusual because it's one of the two books in the Bible named after women. The other one being Ruth. All those things considered, the story of Esther is remarkable because it is a living example of the romance of providence. That is how God directs this universe in which we live today. In fact, it's the way he directs his creation. Now, why would God's name not be mentioned? And how could it then teach the providence of God? Certain books in the Bible teach certain great doctrines of Christian faith. Redemption in the book of Exodus. The book of Ruth illustrates the love side of redemption. The book of Job teaches repentance. And resurrection is hidden in, is, is the hidden theme of Jonah. Mm. Esther's story really began in Persia, where we'll find her, but way back in the land of Israel, hundreds of years earlier. Read in one, Deuteronomy. Said to Moses, Behold, you have rest with your father, and this people will rise and play the harlot to mm. the gods yeah. of the foreigners and of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. Yeah, God outlined to the children of Israel the history for them. He told them. He told them about the Babylon captivity and the Roman captivity. You know, he told them how Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people would be taken. Uh, in verse 18 we said I will surely hide my face from them mm. now that must have hurt him when he turned his face from his people mm. because why? 
because they turn to other gods. There's nothing that upsets God and hurts him more than idolatry. <clears throat> nothing more when we give our attention, our praise, our worship to something that, that shouldn't be. Not only do people mention, not mention God's name in Esther's story, but God has hidden his face from them. One thing is for sure, though, we know God's character and can say with confidence that he is standing in the shadows, yeah. keeping watch over his own. The book of Esther essentially gives us a record of how a group of people willingly walked out of the will of God and how God protected them from the shadows. The children of Israel were in Babylon for 70 years. Then in 538 BC, Cyrus declared that they could return home. He said, go home. What was the problem? They got comfortable in Persia. They got comfortable. And they asked, why go back? According to Ezra, Nehemiah, Less than 60,000 Jews went back. Mm -hmm. The book of Haggai and Zechariah tells us a little more. Between these four books, we get a picture of what is happening back in Jerusalem. And through Esther's story, we find out what has happened to the Jews in Babylon after the captivity. They forgot God. They're far from him. They don't call on his name. Decades before when they first came into the land, what did they say? Number two. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Yeah. We hanged our hearts upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing a Lord's song in a strange land? You know, Decades before, that's what they said. That's where their hearts were. Their hearts were back in Zion. But it's surprising how time goes and we forget. <laughs> very, very quickly we forget. You know, they're not praising God, nor are they praying to him. You know, providence is a means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil towards a worthy purpose, which means he will, he will finally prevail. Or as the psalmist said in Psalm 103, his kingdom rules over all. Yeah. Or in Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding all things by his word of his power. What is this stickum that holds the universe together? We heard a little bit last week from Ken, the week before. What is, what is it that's making it run like clockwork? Today, we can send a man to the moon and know that he will reach it. Mm. We can send little satellites and everything else to Mars and know it'll reach it. What is actually holding the universe together? What's making it run like the clockwork? Mm -hmm. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is running it. Upholding all things that we just said by his word. God's name may not be mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's on every page. You know, God <coughs> will provide. And we've seen his provision right throughout the Bible. Read in 3, Genesis 22. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the woods are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
Can you imagine if it was opposition? There was no lamb, no ram, I know what I would have done. I think I would have liked it. <laughs> and especially that he, he was so obedient, letting him bind him and put him on there. But we see that 2,000 years later, that on the same, uh, the same mountain on Golgotha, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. You know, God provided the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, providence means the hand of God is in the glove of human events, even when it doesn't seem like it. He's the unseen rudder of the ship of the state. He's the pilot at the wheel at the night watch. And someone said, God makes great doors swing on small hinges. We've seen it earlier when a little baby was in the, in the bulrushes and Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe. And what happened? The Lord must have pinched him, nudged him. He didn't let out a little cry. And what happened? She saw him. She fell in love with him. God used that to change the destiny of the people, by the way. Yeah. You know, and in Esther's story, we're going to find one night a king couldn't sleep. And he didn't have any aspirin tablets, so he read some of his records. And it's a good thing that he read them because it changed the destiny of the people. That's providence, and we'll see it over again in this book. You know, Esther was the queen of Xerxes, who reigned over a great empire. And we're told his empire ran from India to Ethiopia through the great fertile crescent. You know, at the time, it was the heartland of the world. Ahusuras was his title. I won't be saying that much. <laughs> but he was known as Xerxes, or Artaxerxes. So I'm saying, was his name. You know, the Greek historian Herodotus describes him as a cruel, capricious, and sensual man. Uh, who Daniel wrote about hundreds of years before. That's why the Cyrus said, go back to your land. This powerful king was unruly to take over the world, as we've seen before with many, many. The only problem was, the, the, the Greeks were, the, were the, the, the enemy that he had to fight. He was three years into his reign when he wanted to get his army together to go and fight. So what did he do? He held a banquet. And he had the rulers of the 127 provinces to come to this banquet. <coughs> oh, I, I'd like that. For six months. Six months. <laughs> they celebrated. Dear me. I couldn't remember one day from the next. I wouldn't have thought. But they celebrated for six days. To prepare for this Greek campaign. And at the same time, there was a smaller banquet for the VIPs in his courtyard. And this time he called for um, Vashti, his wife, to come. The social custom of the day dictated they celebrate separately. But then something happened that changed everything. On the final day of the banquet, the queen got drunk, possibly, and ordered that the queen would come into him, dressed in her royal uh, garments with a crown on, to show her extreme beauty to the guests and official. We say the king who ruled the then known world couldn't bend his own wife to his will. You all know that. Huh? You all been there. She refused to come. Her disobedience enraged the king. Vashti had the freedom to refuse. 
So they had to come up with a harsh law that was an example throughout the kingdom to all the wives. And they did. Their extreme conclusion was to create a law of the Medes and Persians, a law which could not be revoked. The law was that because Vashti would not obey her husband, she was permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence and a royal position would be given to another woman who would obey. Their hope was that when this ruling became public throughout the Medo-Persian kingdom, every woman, regardless of her status, would respect her husband and listen to him. That's the reason he made it. From from history, we know that Xerxes led a great army against the Greeks. He had a great army. There was strength in numbers, but they weren't as well trained as the Greeks. An historian, Herodotus, tells us again that on the battlefield, there was many, many thousands, thousands of Persians that were died, but only about 192 Athenians. So, he had been beaten, so he returned home a broken man. Gone was the glory in battle, and gone was his wife at home. Four years, they say, have gone by since he ruled a quick queen Vashti at the banquet. His expensive and costly campaign against Greece had failed miserably, and he arrived back home in absolute humiliation and defeat. On the surface of it, It looked like nothing spiritual was going on there. But God was overruling the events of the day. In his providence, he was arranging these events so that at the proper time, he'd have someone close to the king to intervene for his people. The focus of our story now turns to Mordecai, a Jew, who we learn at first introduction belongs to the royal family of Israel, to the family of Saul. In one of the first raids led by Nebuchadnezzar, Mordecai as a boy was taken and carried into captivity. And there he was. Mordecai had a, a position within the king's uh, working, but a low position. But Mordecai heard about the beauty contest and he thought about his cousin Esther, whom he had raised like a daughter. And we told that Esther's Persian name meant star. Reading for Esther 2, 7-10. Mordecai had a cousin named Andessa, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So when the king ordered the addict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought up to the citadel in Susa and put under the care of Agai. Uh, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Agai, who had um, charge of the harems. She, she pleased him and won, a, won his favour. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place 
in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So Mordecai, he was living in the Shushan Palace and he would have seen these, these women coming in who were going to go to the king. And he must have thought as they were coming in, they know as beautiful as Esther. My Esther could have a chance of winning, 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 winning the king's heart. So Esther was entered into the contest. She was turned over to Haggai, we told, and he, she found favour with him. Mordecai, at this time, walked every day to the palace to see how, how Esther was getting on, just to keep an eye on her, just to instruct her, just to direct her. Never ever complain about your length of time your, your wife takes to get ready. This goes on for one year. Yeah. Preparation for the marriage. <laughs> one, one year. Uh, Mordecai waits and Esther is in the way for the beauty treatments. During this time, the contestants, one by one, go to the king at night. If he's pleased with them, he calls them back. If not, they go to a separate house and they become part of the concubine. Esther won King Xerxes' favour and his heart. Mm -hmm. So she put, he put the royal crown on her, her head. And the king is delighted with her that he cuts everyone's tax bills. We never see that. He, give, he gives a lot of presents away as well and stuff like that. We don't, we don't see that in this country. Mordecai rose in position then in the king's palace. Reading 5, chapter 2, 21, 23. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthama and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Mm -hmm. So it was recorded what Mordecai had done, but there was no reward. And historians will tell us at the time, if you'd done anything with the king and found his favour, he gave one guy a country. And there were lavish gifts on him, but Mordecai, he gave nothing. But we see God is working. Mm. Around this time, the king promoted a man by the name of Haman mm. to be his second in command. Mm. Haman comes from a long line of anti-Semitics, those who hate Jews. You can trace his history back mm. to Pharaoh in Egypt, who tried to eliminate the Jews by killing the firstborn. And to the Agites, the Amalekites, yeah. the enemy of Israel, who God told Saul to wipe out. Yeah. Down through the ages, God has protected his people. Although we've seen the massacre and the, the annihilation, we've always kept a remnant. He appointed them to be custodians of his revelation that through them, we would have a saviour. The Messiah came through these people. God has made good on that. God says no weapon formed against you will prosper. And that includes Haman. Haman would have exterminated the Jews. You know, the king sent word throughout the kingdom about Haman's new appointment. And what did that mean? 
He said, when you see Haman, you've got to bow down to him. You've got to bow down to him. But we see Mordecai would not. Mordecai would not bow down to him. So what's Haman going to do? You know, he's a, he's a clever rascal, and he'd come up with some wicked plan to destroy God's people, not just Mordecai. He stood in a long line of haters who attempted to destroy the nation of Israel. Pharaoh tried it. Later, Herod tried it. Even more recently, Hitler tried it. Satan has been anxious to destroy the people God loves. But God has his hand of protection on his people. <coughs> Through them, the word of God has come into the world. Also, the Lord Jesus came through this ancestry line. Today, however, we see the Jews are far away from God and, we have to say, like many other nations, far from him. But God has a purpose for the Jews and he will turn them back when God has concluded his purpose with the church. Mm. Behind every act of anti-Semitism is the evil one, the devil. Mm. We see him moving. Haman has been elevated to a very high position in world politics. He's probably the prime minister of one of the strongest empires on the earth. Even so, the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to Haman really disturbed him, it bugged him, that this one man would not bow down to him. And we know he's gonna do something about it. Haman and Xerxes were politicians facing an age-old problem. They needed to raise taxes. Remember, Xerxes had a big bill from the war against in Europe. <coughs> And he needed straps to pay for it. So first of all, they raised taxes through the lottery. A form of gambling called casting per. But it didn't raise enough money. So they had to look for something else, another fundraiser. Haman persuaded the king to write one of his famous laws. This one condemning a group of people who Haman said were not loyal to the king. Haman accused them of following different laws and disobeying the king. His strategy was to get the Jews killed and bring their money into the king's treasury. Like most politicians, the king was interested in any plan to raise money, taxes, and get him out of the jam. Not once did he ever ask who the people were. Haman even offered to personally pay a large sum of money to execute the plan. Xerxes not only agreed, he gave Haman his signet ring, his royal stamp of approval. But when you put that into anything, it was law, it was binding, it couldn't be revoked. But you know, it didn't worry what King Xerxes had, had done, it was a bad move. When this plan was put into law, it took quite an effort to get the word across the vast Medo-Persian Empire. But we are told, that his father, 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 Darius, had set up an excellent fast courier postal service which operated throughout the empire. So we see the kings before them put things into place. This order that was anti-Semitic of the worst kind and satanic at the core. On the 13th day of the month of Ada, roughly a year away, the government is ordering the massacre of the Jews. Children and old men, women and babies, were to be killed and their property would be handed over to those who killed them. You know, and this was actually put out in bulletins throughout all 
the empire in all the provinces. I think it's like some of the films they produce now. Is it 24 hours we can go out and kill people? And there's films like that about. <laughs> but they reckon that this would have exterminated approximately 15 million Jews. 15 million. And remember, the lords of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. The king isn't interested in God's will, but God will overrule him. Read in 6, chapter 4, 1 to 3. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth to the ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry, and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, with the swell of the commandment of his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. We see that they fasted and everything, but no mention of prayer. Although probably, probably a lot of people thought about it and contemplated on it. But nothing mentioned about prayer. Reading 7, chapter 4, 6 to 9. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai and to the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him. And of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hattach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So Mordecai said to Esther, go into the king. That was something you didn't do. He said, if you went into it, you could be cut down. So when I was looking and reading that, what they had was many, many guards. I believe Cyrus put into place years before, guards with axes. So if you stepped in that thing, they'd chop you up. You couldn't get very far, but that was on the line. And she was a bit frightened because she hadn't seen him for 30 days. But Mordecai put it on the line. Read in eight. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening, she went... And in the morning she returned to the second house of the woman, to the custody of Shashagaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She, she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Mikhail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favour in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Asusas into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. You see there that um, he was preparing a way for deliverance for his people. God knows what's coming. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't think of that. And that's the reason we can trust him. He has the power to hold us. He know what's going to happen today, the next day, and the next day. We can trust him. In this risky plan, Mordecai takes a stand for God. He's willing to die for him. So is Esther. You see then when Esther goes in, King Xerxes holds out his golden scepter, which he touches and goes in. And he knows there must be something up because she wouldn't have gone there unless something was concerning her. And he said to her, tell me what's wrong. I'll give you anything. Just tell me what's wrong. She was obviously a bit frightened, probably trembling. And she said, will you come to a luncheon? Come to dinner and bring Haman with you. You know, we're about to witness a young girl do an audacious and brave thing. On a human level, Esther is the only hope for her people. Haman is set to annihilate God's people. With courage and grit, Esther risked her life when she entered the king's presence, uninvited. God's unseen hand of providence is moving. How do we know? Psalm 20, uh, Proverbs 21 one says, even when rulers are cruel and brutal and godless, their hearts are in the hand of God. God could have squeezed at any time and killed him. But he didn't. Come to see her. But she didn't say anything. She said, can you come again for another banquet tomorrow? So, as Eamon left the palace, he was happy. That he was invited to another meal the following day. But we know he's playing the fool. He leaves the palace and he passes Mordecai again. And he's furious. He's furious that Mordecai is still not bowing down to him. So he goes home, he gets his friends and his wife, Zaresh. And he said that, he, you know, he, he gloats about what he got, his wealth. Ten children, you know, ten sons. He said, I'm going back to the Queen's, Queen Esther for a second meal. But, you know, this petty man with his wounded spirit revealed how little things made him angry. He's riding high in his career but is derailed by one guy who wouldn't respect him. You know, we generally reveal what kind of person we are by the things we let annoy us. Haman's wife and friend said, build build the gallows. Oh, eight foot, nine foot? No, 50 cubits, 75 foot. (laughs) 75 (laughs) foot, I'm thinking. (laughs) So they were doing that through all the night, but we see God was working. The same night, King Xerxes had a restless night. Reading 9, chapter 6, 1-11. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains and the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on King Heres. And the king said, What honour and dignity hath, done, hath been done to Mordecai for this? And then said the king's servants that ministered to him, There is nothing done for him. 
And the king said, who is, the, who is in this court? Now Haman was come up into the outward court in the king's house to speak unto the king to hand Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done to a man whom the king delighted to honour? <laughs> now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honour more than to himself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighted to honour. Let the royal apparel be brought, which the king used uh, useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let the apparel and the horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with whom the king delighted to honour, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him. Um, Thus saith it be done to the man whom the king delighted to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel of the horse, as thou hast said, and do even to unto a Mordecai the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fall of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel, apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighted to honour. Hasn't God got a sense of humour? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, he must have said, what? Well, what? Are you serious? You know, but after this, Mordecai then returned. Returned, frustrated, confused, back to Esther. And for the second meal. So the king turned the old you know, to Esther, saying, in effect, be comfortable, ask whatever you want, and it will be yours. Up to half the kingdom. I'll give it you. Read in 10. Chapter 7, 3 to 7. And Queen Esther answered, My king, if you are pleased with me, and if it pleases you, let me live. This is what I ask, and let my people live too. This is what I want. My people and I have been sold, sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and completely wiped out. If we had been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because that would not be enough of a problem to bother the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has done such a thing? Esther said, Our enemy and foe is this wicked Haman. And Haman was filled with terror before the king and queen. The king was very angry, so he got up, left his wine, and went out of the palace garden. But Haman stayed inside to beg Queen Esther to save his life. He could see that the king had already decided to kill him. So you see King Xerxes, he's in a bit of a quandary. Haman, who was his trusted advisor, <laughs> probably got one out of a sticky wicket by going to generate money. All of a sudden, he had to do something. When he went back in, he found that Haman was all over Esther, begging, crawling, groveling. He didn't worry about sending people to their deaths or killing him. But the king said, hang him on his gallows. You know, you just can't mock God. Whatever you sow, you reap. Little man Haman had his day. You can be a villain if you want to. You can run against God's plan and purpose, but you won't defeat God. We see that all this happened, and then Esther introduced Mordecai to the king, who, who he raised to be prime minister, give it a signet ring, 
But how do we know Mordecai was the Prime Minister? Archaeologists in 1930 was excavating in, in Persepolis, that's the capital of the Persian Empire, and dug up a stone tablet bearing the name Maduka, who was Prime Minister, most likely meaning Mordecai. But there's still a problem. Still a problem. The Lord's been put in that they will be executed. They will be killed. That law cannot be revoked. First lem, uh, number lem there. All of them, four, five, ten lem, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Then the king extended the old scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed with the dispatches for the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children to plunder the properties of their enemies. You know, we learn that when, Jesus, that when the Jews heard the second decree, they threw a party and feasted and had great joy and gladness. They gave such a good witness that people wanted to become Jews. The event is known as the Feast of Purim. It's not mentioned in the New Testament, but they still celebrate it today. They recognize it as a day of great deliverance for them. For on the day that was supposed to be their death, the king, the king's second decree said they could defend themselves and the government that had condemned them would now help them. They say they killed Haman's ten sons and Queen Esther, lovely Queen Esther, put their heads up, put their heads on pikes, put them up. Show them, and they did. And not only that, they extended it for another 24 hours and they killed many, many thousands, thousands, the Jews did. The people then were frightened because the Jews were protected. No one now could withstand them. Why? Because the man Mordecai stood by the side of the king. And there's a man in, in, in glory, Jesus Christ, standing at his father's throne. He knows exactly how we feel. He's there for us today, interceding for us. How wonderful to know we've got somebody up there for us. Today, at the Feast of Purim, Jews pray for three, three prayers of thanksgiving. They thank God that they are counted worthy. They thank God for saving their ancestors and they thank God that they, they've lived to enjoy another festival. They celebrate the keeping power of God. His providence, Jesus Christ keeps his nation, Israel. He keeps his church and he keeps the individuals that are his. He's able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him. God's providence is amazing. It's absolutely wonderful. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To find out more about our church, including our service times, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org.